Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. I'm Kennedy. Brandon's here. That's right. I'm always here. Always. All That's right. <laughs> and we are very excited. We are talking with some of our favorite friends of the show today. We got Nancy Larson and Quinn Albright in the house. Nancy, Quinn, thank you so much once again for stopping by for another episode. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you. We love you guys. Uh, we love you too. Your campaign has been incredible. We've loved following it. And we're just so excited to have you on once again for an in-depth look into what's going on in the shady, slimy world of Ohio politics. <laughs> I listen, as someone who's from Georgia, you're one of the few states that I can look at their news and feel good about myself and feel good about my state. So no matter how good, no matter how bad things are getting in Ohio, I want you to always remember, Georgia, we love you and we're very thankful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a good thing, I don't think. No, us. it's absolutely not. We have, we have the least popular governor in America and somehow y'all are like doing worse. How like... But that's How, that's why Nancy's running, right? <laughs> this is true. What's the school situation like up there? Is sanity prevailing or is it losing? No. Oh, no, no, no. We have uh, crazy anti-maskers. They started showing up at Columbus at the State House when Governor DeWine was doing his press conferences every week and banging on the doors, just screaming with their assault rifles slung over their arms. And they had to move the press conference to an internal room in the State House because they were just making such a ruckus that they couldn't even broadcast from there. And now the people are doing that in the school districts where when the school boards are meeting to discuss whether they're going to open, parents are protesting outside, yelling and screaming, you know, we want our kids back in school and they're not wearing masks and you can't make us. And it's just uh, total chaos. Hey, let me uh, let me ask you a question. Are you supporting uh, the vice president in this election that's upcoming? The vice president? Uh, Joe Biden. Okay. <laughs> I thought of our former vice president, right? Certainly supporting Kamala Harris. <laughs> all, all right. Well, let's. That's a, that's an interesting way to phrase it. So, listen. How do you think? Because I was talking privately with some friends, and we were arguing over whether we feel like a Democratic administration would do a better job with the virus. Do you feel like having more support from Washington would help in this situation, or? In your state, would it just make the anti-maskers like more virulent about like not cooperating? Could possibly be that. I think the train left the station for federal leadership a long time ago. And we really are every state for itself. And in here, it's every school district for itself. I don't know how it's all going to play out. But the districts that have red alert, where there's high cases and still high deaths, they are shutting down and they're doing virtual learning only. And the other school districts that are more rural, that have a softer situation with the virus, they are opening up on kind of a hybrid model with half day half school and half learning by remote so if we had had a coherent federal response then we'd be past this point but now it's it's every school district has to kind of figure out what they think is in their best interest and every parent has to figure out based on their own family's risk tolerance whether it's riskier to send the kid to school or have them stay at home and the parents not be able to go to work themselves because there's not childcare. It's a whole risk cost benefit that families have to do. And that's unfortunate, but I think that's where we are with the decision making. 
That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because if early on, if we had responded the way any like normal country did, we would have been done with this months ago. If we had had a proper national lockdown for three weeks, four weeks, and had like a real coordinated response, we wouldn't still be dealing with this. But at that at this point, the train is so far past the station that it's like. I'm kind of almost like I just have a deep pessimism about like what's going to happen with coronavirus from here on out, no matter what. It is a rather grim situation. To answer your question, I do think the Democrats would have somewhat more of a coherent thing. And if if they win by a lot, then I'm hoping that the folks that are on the side of sanity and science will continue to express themselves and, and be much more vocal. But it's it's a fraught time for sure. The guy I'm running against wrote a bill to silence the, our, okay, DeWine is a Republican who I did not vote for, but he got a great deal of support from everybody, including Democrats, because he was listening to Dr. Amy Acton, his director of health, and the two of them were working in concert, and she was great. I, she's like a female Mr. Rogers, very soothing very but smart and she had she had it together and they yeah they made a good team so as the democrats were praising dewine and being happy that we were being science-based the republicans in columbus decided that they needed to go after the two of them and start pressuring him to don't listen to her she's a woman and she's a scientist and what's wrong with you and we need to open back up again and they showed up across from her house with rifles death threats to her and her family. She's Jewish, so anti-Semitic stuff, and she resigned. And uh, don't, don't you know, Nancy? She shared a, an Obama event 10 years ago, uh, so she's actually a secret communist agent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> God. That was literally what they were arguing. They were arguing that she was like a Democrat plant trying to sabotage our economy because she shared an Obama volunteer event in 2008. And it's yeah. just like... Just like paranoid conspiracy nonsense that she was some yeah. kind of like plant who was trying to destroy Ohio. And so she got removed and replaced. She she's a she's an epidemiologist. The only plant trying to destroy Ohio is kudzu, just for the record. <laughs> let me, let me tell you <laughs> as the Georgian, I can tell you all about that one. Oh, yeah, it's everywhere. Well, the guy I'm running against was part of that pressure. He yeah. wrote uh, a letter to DeWine saying, you know, you should resign. He wrote wrote the bill that the Republicans signed on to saying that if they didn't like her public health orders, that in 14 days they would basically disappear because she wasn't an elected official and they were and they had the final word and the heck with what she had to say in terms of running the state. So all of that combined with the death threats, she, she left. And we've been a little rudderless since then. And that's where we are. Yeah. We went very quickly from one of the best coordinated responses in the country to just basically uh, saying, um, fuck it, we'll do it live. Um, <laughs> Becoming Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, total, <laughs> just total guardrails off. Um, <laughs> out of control. So. But you know, it's your right to not wear a helmet when you're motorcycling, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um let's talk about something maybe at least slightly more on the positive side on the subject of getting some people who are currently or were currently you know on the bad side of that uh lawmaking 
that Republican nonsense out of office. We just had some exciting news in the country. Everybody was looking at it because it was that good uh, about y'all getting uh, <laughs> getting a certain someone, first of all, not just in hot water, but now he can't even, Mr. Larry Householder cannot even get a lawyer to represent him. This is like the funniest thing I've seen in a while. Yeah. And like when there's yeah. so much, we started this off with some slightly upsetting news when there's so much upsetting news in the world something like this is really it just warms like the the dark pits <laughs> of my heart that i thought could never be warmed again you know <laughs> quinn i feel like you probably are best suited to just give the audience the blow by blow how did larry householder go from uh being at the top of the world as the speaker of the house to at the bottom of the trash can <laughs> So Larry Householder, uh, he came to power basically by like brokering a deal with moderate Democrats to get elected speaker basically on the promise. Oh, wait, he brokered like a deal? I thought that he was just given the position, given his name. <laughs> no! <laughs> that had to be bought too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more or less because so he basically brokered a deal with moderate Democrats that like, okay, listen, I do think that black people should be fed into a meat grinder. I uh, I do think that uh, women should be illegal. I do think that uh, you know immigrants are actually some kind of Looney Tune race that needs to be eradicated. But I won't pass right to work laws. Please vote for me. And um, by made a deal with, I mean, gave a bunch of money to. And he gave a bunch of money to people across the state and worked behind closed doors with uh, First Energy to give money to a bunch of uh, races uh, uh, in both parties. And um, that um, made him Speaker of the House. And uh, once he was there, he passed a, uh, I think, $1.4 billion bailout that had no strings attached at all for uh, several nuclear plants and coal plants, a few of which were in Indiana. And uh, the way they funded it was by jacking up electric rates on Ohioans and completely defunding Ohio's green energy initiatives. And by the uh, the grace of God, the FBI got wind of the fact that he'd been coordinating with First Energy behind the scenes and uh, threw his ass in jail, owned. <laughs> so that's where we are right now. And Nancy, your opponent was on that list of people taking the slime money, right? Yes, yes. yes. $2,500 from First Energy, no. $7,708 from Larry Householder. It's not just the bailout of the nuclear power plants and getting rid of the energy efficiency and the subsidies to green and solar. The citizens were not okay with this bailout. Massive, massive opposition to it. So we wanted to do a ballot referendum to keep this you know, bill from, from going into effect. First Energy contacted about, there were 14 some or more agencies that hire the people to do the signature gathering for these yeah. kinds of things. They paid them to not take the job. Yeah, I actually was, I was one of the people who was contacted. I went down to Columbus with some Green Party guy to take a job collecting petitions to get HB6 repealed. They ended up saying, paying me for the day, but saying we can't hire you because you're not 18 yet because I wasn't 18 at the time. Legally, I'm allowed to collect signatures, but their company policy is that they don't hire anyone under 18. So they paid me for the day and then sent me home. But um, shortly after I got home from Columbus, I got a call from someone who sort of not so subtly said that if I still had the job they would have bribed me in wow. addition to bribing petitioners to stop 
supporting the petition. They're also paying people to basically chase them around and harass them and, and like encourage people not to sign their petition. It was one of the most, and, and they ran these TV ads basically saying that the efforts to repeal HB6 were being funded by the Chinese government. And just some of the most blatantly xenophobic, paranoid, dirty politics I've ever seen. So not enough to buy off the legislators to pass this crap. Then they get involved in making sure that the citizens don't have companies to hire to run a ballot referendum. And then they also are paying the actual people getting the signatures with plane tickets and money to throw the signatures away. It, yeah. it just has been crap the whole time. So th this is yeah. our super majority. Everything that Trump does on the federal level, we have going on here in I'm Ohio. Saying. And what's worse is these guys were doing it first, so they, they're way more competent at it than he is. <laughs> yeah. They've got it down to a science. It's disgusting. Um, so I read, and y'all can verify if I'm wrong here or anything, but I read that uh, that Larry Householder could be facing up to 20 years in prison, um, which is pretty significant. He obviously was also removed as Speaker of the House. Um, yeah, that took them a while. That took them a while to decide that that was appropriate. They did not kick him out. He is still getting a salary, and he is still his the representative of his district. Derek Marin voted against removing him from the state house. Just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so he he was removed as speaker. He's not been removed from his position, just as speaker, as, as we said. Correct. But he is looking, and he's looking at a very paltry fine. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars went into this, or, or we're on the line, rather. 60 million went into the bribery itself, at least. But there were billions of dollars on the line in this scheme. Um, and he's only looking at like a, like a $250,000 fine or something. But the 20 years in jail, that could be somewhat significant. So there is at least a chance of maybe him seeing some kind of real repercussions here. But the funniest part, again, is just, this lack of lawyer. I've never heard of this. No matter how Jeffrey Epstein got a lawyer, right? Like, I mean, like, it doesn't seem to matter how scummy you are. Somebody will usually represent you, no matter what it is you did or how bad you look. Someone will like crawl out of the fucking sewer and be like, I passed the bar. I got you. I got you covered. You know, like, and, and Larry Householder, they've had to delay his trial like twice now because he can't get a lawyer. This is crazy. No one, like, no one wants to defend him. He needs to call up uh, Trump's personal physician and see whether or not he <laughs> Yeah, Dershow Alan Dershowitz is going to parachute off of Lolita Express into Columbus to defend that, uh, uh, Larry Householder. I mean, if Wexner's money has anything to say about it. I have to ask, with, with a situation like that, do you think he's maybe being cut loose? Like, do you think that, like, other people are going to just, like, let him take the bullet so that they can they can keep their jobs or whatever? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. He Well, it wasn't just him. He got, a lobbyist got arrested. The guy who set up the... Uh, the founder of Republicans for Biden. Yeah, the, a former Republican chairperson. There were five of them that were all arrested at the same time. So yeah, it's a, it's a whole scheme. It's a whole... <laughs> this is literally like an episode of Arrested Development. Yeah. <laughs> um, the more power that these people get, like the less they feel the need to hide it. It reminds me of Steve Bannon, who just got arrested or indicted or whatever while hanging on the yacht. It's literally how Arrested Development opened. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of tragedy in 2020, but there's also a lot of absurdity, a lot of weirdness. So let's just embrace the weirdness of Larry Householder who can't find a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, from uh, Cleveland.com. Ex-Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder's arraignment on a racketeering conspiracy charge has been postponed by two weeks because of his difficulties finding a, quote, conflict-free, end quote, legal counsel, despite <laughs> his best efforts to do so, a federal judge announced on Thursday. Oh, conflict-free? I wasn't even thinking about that. But that is, when you're this dirty, who are you not already in bed with? <laughs> like, literally like we're it's like we gotta we gotta try to find a, a lawyer for you that you haven't bribed larry and he's just sitting there like ah oh, shit <laughs> let's go to georgia <laughs> yeah, listen, they've got to do they've got to do a lawyer exchange program and so the georgia grifter can come up to ohio the ohio grifter can come back here Apparently, there's enough similarities that you can get away with it. You'll be right at home. Well, we are hoping that the public consciousness has enough memory to recollect this stuff in November or October, whenever the absentee ballots are put in. But oh, there's just there's too much scandal and corruption for one brain to hold. How's absentee voting looking in your state? Because like... I'm in New Mexico, which is currently being lauded as like one of the better states in the union thanks to COVID. But like, I feel like the governor is kind of using that little bit of credit to just like completely drop the ball with absentee ballots and be like, I'm still good, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've had uh, post office boxes, you know, mailboxes ripped off of the, the street yet. But the Secretary of State, uh, LaRose, has decided that we don't need more than one drop box in front of the government center in any of the counties, despite the volume of absentee mail that's likely to be dropped off. And he was claiming that he couldn't do that. That was not within his purview, which is total bullshit. He has every ability to say where he wants to put these things, how many, and he's passing the buck to the legislators and saying it's up to them. And he does this a lot. In 2018, when he was running for re-election, he said that he supported automatic voter registration and released several tweets encouraging the state legislature to pass it as if he couldn't do that on his authority. But my understanding of it is that as Secretary of State, you like absolutely could do that yourself. That might be off base, but like he kept saying, I support it, I support it, I support automatic voter registration, while at the same time he was like systemically purging anyone who like slightly misplaced like a comma in like their name. Just uh Yeah, I mean you've stunning. got he you have your fingers on that database, but like <laughs> Yeah. You're the one deciding who's getting purged or not right now. Um <laughs> Yeah. So the Dems have been pretty strong in sending him a thing saying, here's what we expect from you. Really good bullet points about what would be adequate and not be voter suppression. He's turning a blind eye to all of it at this point. And we started out um, in League of Women Voters and we started out really encouraging people to get absentee ballots. Now it's I feel like it's sort of shifting to encouraging people to go to early voting. A lot of the polling places are going to be closed down because they're not able to be COVID, just the physical plant of it can't be set up to have social distancing and we right. don't have poll workers, enough poll workers to open. It's just, it's going to be a shit show, but it's that way everywhere. But y'all are going strong. In fact, you were just phone banking before you came here, right? I was, and I'll get back on again. We are doing, we're trying to do 2,000 calls a week. We have not hit that yet. Woo! We're probably more around 1,000 calls going out a week, but the, the goal is to get up to 2,000 a week. Let's ask the question. I actually have a logistical 
question, and this is important for people who are organizers, and we have a lot of organizers in our audience. What are the logistics of making 2,000 calls a week? How many people do I need to mobilize and for how much time? And what system do I use to make sure that they are doing that? We are using Mobilize for people to sign up, and it takes about nine or ten people on each shift. We have four shifts a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evening from five until seven, and then a Saturday shift from 12 until two. So basically eight hours, and if we have nine or ten people signed up for each of those four shifts, we are figuring 25 calls an hour, 50 calls per person, so five hundred calls per shift. Are you having success getting that volume, like getting those people? And what do you say to them to get them to volunteer for like a local election? We have about half of those numbers filled, so maybe five people. Saturdays is good. We have a good 10 or 11 people on Saturdays. The other evening shifts, we're lighter. We're going to have to experiment in a week or so and maybe change up some of the times. But I'm recruiting from our Rev people, from Bernie people. There's Elizabeth Warren's uh, field folks that we're in contact with. So you just know someone at each of these orgs and yeah. you like put out the yeah. word about Nancy. Right, okay, right. Cool. My church, I'm expecting seven or eight volunteers from them on a once a week basis. Praise the Lord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's time to make these phone calls, let me tell you. They're a, a very progressive congregation and good support. I, I have good support from them. So basically just trying to tap into each of those groups and seeing if I can get five or six commitments from each of those groups and have people come regularly and man the phones. Definitely, definitely. I just want to say too, you know, a lot of people on the left discount the idea of church groups, but there are progressive church groups and those people do do volunteer work like crazy. Yeah, I do want to. Yeah, you know, what? I did want to talk about like running for a local office because we have a lot of people who run for office and they think in terms of, you know, they're thinking, oh, I'm going like, to think in terms of posting. I'm going to post. I got some fire posts that are going to come up. But like the actual work of bringing people out is like, do I know five people in this social group that like right. care enough about me to spend some time to help me? What about this social group? What about that one? Because the people who are like engaging with your posts, like they're liking, they're retweeting, but it's going to be a lot harder to mobilize those people to mm -hmm. volunteer and make calls and flyer. And like, you can make a list of the things that are important to do. That's like the dirty work that actually results in human beings helping you get elected more than like this, po like this podcast, which has use. Like it, it's very useful, but like the phones make more of a difference than just post. Yeah. I want to say that the uh, red to blue change for our campaign being upgraded into eminently flippable. I think that that helps people feel like they want to be on board because it's it kind of cuts through some of the, oh my God, why should I do this? And nothing's going to happen anyway. Yeah. It's if not we, impossible anymore. Yeah. It, we, yeah. it looks like it's for real. Yep. I, I wanted to ask about actually about the um, being targeted as a flippable district, because, mm -hmm. you know, when we when we started talking to y'all, gosh, I mean, long time ago now, so over six months ago, you know, you guys felt confident in like the ability to like push the district and maybe flip it. But you knew it was an uphill battle. And now it's like out of the dozens and dozens and dozens of races that are going on in Ohio this year, eight have been selected by the Ohio Democratic Party as like, we can really do this. And y'all mm -hmm. one of them. Yep. Yes. Yep. yep. Well, it's eight plus four, so it's twelve altogether. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, 
Yeah, it's not just us feeling optimistic. It's other people that are watching and saying, yeah, this really can happen with enough. We still have a heck of a lot of work to do. Those yeah, 2,000 calls have to be made at, right. um, for several weeks at least and a lot of lit dropping, but I think we can do it. Yeah. We, uh, with still, uh, I believe, 10 days left in the month, thereabouts, uh, we've had our best fundraising month by not a particularly close margin already. And um, there's just a lot of a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy. Endorsements are coming in. Money is coming in. It's all like, like I, we can do this. I, I, I think we really can. I think it's going to be a close race. But um, this district that, you know, a year ago, any Democrat in the state party probably would have told you is unflippable. We are we're set to to win. Uh, maybe I, I, uh, I like, but like, like it's for real now, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, do you know what some of the factors were that went into the state party's decision to like target the races that it did, including your race? Uh, polling. That's what we can say. Yeah. Polling. Okay. Yeah. Can't say anything <laughs> beyond that. Do you think there were any factors in terms of like endorsements or community engagement or any of that, that might've also swayed the needle? A lot of union endorsements, I think, probably helped. I've got most every endorsement that I asked for, with the exception of the Toledo Patrolmen's Association. <laughs> and I actually thought I could get that from them. <laughs> but they weren't happy with my Black Lives Matter involvement and in that I have Moms Demand Action, you know, gun sense designation. So they had a spirited discussion afterwards and they voted not to endorse me. Nancy, I think that you and your campaign will probably be fine. <laughs> you know maybe you're, maybe you're better off i wrote them back a letter and i said i don't understand why the police aren't interested in getting rid of bad policing <laughs> but anyway yeah yeah some of it is our work and the fact that i've been doing this longer than a lot of the other candidates and we do have some re name recognition that's i'm calling people and they're like i already know you i, I follow you on instagram and like i'm more never... twitter followers than derek Marin. yeah and i've never been on my own instagram so that was kind of shocking to me <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the social media and we have yard signs and some billboards out now that people are noticing and they're picking up on the fact there's some energy yeah i absolutely love it hey Let's actually talk because I had an episode with Rachel and we talked about a certain left-wing group that does a lot of digital operations and fundraising. And we talked about labor support and investment. How do you build a relationship with the labor community? And let's say that you are just an activist or you're just the person off the street and you're thinking, I might want to run for office in four years. Let's say even say two years. How do I build a relationship with labor? So I joined Farm Labor Organizing Committee, which is a uh, like mostly Latin union, which does a lot of organizing in the Toledo area. And I joined as an associate member. And for a while there, I went to meetings fairly consistently. I've also spent the past, uh, I guess, two years at this point. Um, every time there's a strike in town, me and Nancy are out on the picket. Nurses um, went on strike last year. I used my connections at the Bernie campaign to get that uh, that St. Vincent's nurses strike promoted to a national platform. And Nancy and I were out there almost every day. I know one day I was out on the picket starting at 10 a.m. in the morning to like 2 a.m. the following day. You just, I mean, there's no shortcut. There is no shortcut. You go and 
build those relationships and you get their trust by being there for them. You know, the pictures posted help, you know, they see that you were showing up and yeah, that's helpful. But but you can't be there for the photo op, you know, yeah, yeah. You just got to show up for them. You know, I, there's no easy shortcut to uh, convincing the AFL CIO to, okay, no, I'm not getting. <laughs> you, can't, you can't you can't post to a general strike you, you have to like actually go out and do the hard work of yeah. strike support and just being there you know nancy would you say labor is your well i won't don't set a don't set a hierarchy on it name a valuable relationship that you've built during your career and how did you build it um do you guys know about the nib no tell us National Infrastructure Bank bill ringing any bells? Absolutely not. This right. is not guests that are <laughs> okay. Tell us. Well, a very important relationship that I started to develop a couple years ago was with this uh, local labor leader named Bob Lynn Jr. And he was working at the time with a consortium of people from around the country to get a bill passed through Congress that essentially is the same structure that Alexander Hamilton came up with to fund the country in its inception. And it's had a couple different iterations. The last one was F. FDR used it to fund all of the Great Depression. uh, New Deal projects. Yep. So this was even before the pandemic. This was before massive unemployment. This was, this is what we need to do because he's a plumber and pipe fitter union person and the infrastructure needs for our city and the state are just amazing. So it's a public investment bank, uh, like Corbyn proposed in 2017 and 2019. Uh, It would allow us to make massive investments in rural broadband, in infrastructure, in small business. It would, it would allow the public to directly invest in our country in the things that we need. Um, and whenever people talk about, like, how do we pay for it, right? And the answer really is a national publicly owned investment bank that can go in and take care of the financing for these big national projects that we need. And it would give $4 trillion into this to be available for dispersal to the states and bring 25 million jobs. So... This guy has been working on this. They found some people to sponsor it. It is in making its way through committee now. Each of the days of the Democratic National the Convention, they've done a webinar that people there could tune in and learn more about it. They have representatives in different states that are starting to lobby their folks to get on board and to support it. And it's just like a perfect storm of we need this. We needed it four years ago, but we really, really need it now with the pandemic and unemployment it's the only answer that's going to make sense it's it's debt neutral it's not going to add four trillion to the the national debt and it's a structure that we've used before to you know civilian conservation corps and all of that good stuff that that happened fdr did so i know him and i had him come on my facebook live thing and it's just it shows that i have credibility i'm working with people that are know what to do to fix things and that i'm a person 
person that's going to research. I'm a person that's going to learn and be connected to folks. And again, my opponent does none of this that I can tell. And well, I mean, Derek Barron does do a connection with community groups, but instead of like, you know, Poplin Jr. is a lifelong uh, pipe fitter, uh, I believe. I think that's Mm -hmm. correct. And uh, he's done a lot of work with Jobs with Justice. And uh, as we said, the National Investment Bank, Derek Marin does that with, um, you know, people who want it to be legal to sell heroin to children. So That's no bueno. <laughs> so, um, you know, like that's extremely I no thought, bueno. I thought that he was doing, I thought that he was doing community involvement with Larry Householder. <laughs> I can't rattle off the website, but it's NIB National Infrastructure Bank. There is a website. You can Google that and most likely likely it'll come up. I'm sure there's people in New Mexico. I sat in on one of their first meetings and the next day I got a call from a guy in Virginia who said, just, you know what? just call in to say thanks for sitting in. They have an organizing meeting that has people from all over the country that if you're interested, you could get on the call like I did just to hear what they were talking about. And then this guy from Virginia followed up to just say, do you have any questions? And I said, I I can call Bob Lynn if I do, because he's right here. Well, I think stuff like that is really great because a lot of times, you know, there's this type of capitalist efficiency that ignores any kind of long term structural improvement, basically. Mm -hmm. And like this, we actually when COVID was first really becoming like serious, we did an episode about primarily about housing where we talked about this with a guest and um there was basically this perception of like yeah where this thing that we were talking about was like yeah like uh there's this efficiency to not having empty hospitals right there's this obvious capitalist Mm -hmm. efficiency to not having empty hospitals sitting around but there's an inefficiency when you suddenly have a pandemic and you can't accommodate it without like you know because you don't have the hospital beds so it's like you create these other types of inefficiencies in the long run and of course those tend to hurt the poor and working class the most as opposed to hurting the rich who can like just sort of skate by so like when we talk about something like this national investment bank this is a way to get around that as i see it and maybe you could tell me if you think i'm right here but like this is a great way to get around some of those issues by saying actually we can invest in these long-term things that maybe aren't going to make any billionaires any extra dollars today but which are going to make our community healthier safer and more prosperous in the long run yep Yep, absolutely. Well, I think that's really cool. I, I definitely think that's, I, I'm going to listen in on one of those calls for sure. Cause, uh, absolutely. Yeah. That sounds like, that sounds like the, the kind of thing that we need. And like I say, we're just lacking so often with this sort of quote unquote efficiency that doesn't really take us anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We our, our district is partially rural and, uh, out in Fulton County, uh, which is like a, a big part of our district. Hey, Quinn, I'm going to interrupt you. Guess what County I live in. I, Fulton. Well, Oh, Fulton County, Fulton, Georgia. Georgia. I know every yeah. time I hear that. I, no, we're Fulton. Yeah, but I know you all have Fulton in Georgia, too. The connections keep stacking up between these two. <laughs> but uh, Quinn, yeah, rural districts. Um, we've been pushing to Nancy, um, I think, uh, if she was elected, uh, would introduce legislation to grant uh, rural communities uh, the right of first refusal yes. uh, on rural hospitals so that if they are closing or being bought out and turn into, you know, I don't know, parking or whatever, they will have the right to step in and say, no, no, we're buying the hospital. We're keeping it open. Um, and it is absurd that as COVID-19, like, you know, 
ravages across our country, killing now, I believe, what, 170,000 people? Mm -hmm. um, you still have these hospitals in poor or urban areas and in rural areas closing, uh, cutting off many people's, like, only uh, ability to, like, receive healthcare, And it's really ridiculous, this idea that it's somehow more efficient to let people die. And it's like, efficient for who? What, what does that even mean past a certain point? Because like, from a pure like, circulating money so you can maximize GDP, like, yeah, I guess that is the most efficient thing you can do. But what does that matter if the expense is hundreds of thousands of people's lives? What is the economy really for? And and I think in any sane humanitarian system, any any decent political project, the answer of what is the economy for would be maximizing people's livelihood, community, and happiness, not getting Jeffrey Epstein a bigger airplane. Well said. He's so idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy Larson, Quinn Albright, it's so good to record with you every time. Like, I feel like it's like when you, you're in the booth with like a certain musician and you just know it's another number one hit. I feel like that's, <laughs> that's what we just did right here. Um, every time you leave an episode, we just look at each other and go, another one. Another one. <laughs> I do want to say, I, okay, I have my pitch. I, yeah. Nancy4.us, N-A-N-C-Y-F-O-R.us, like Uncle Sam. There's a contest now that is uh, going on with all the other candidates who gets the most individual donors in August is going to get 500 bucks for our campaign. So some of your folks sent us, you know, some money last time. A dollar, two dollars is fine. But if we rack up the individual donors, then I might win the contest and get the extra five hundred dollars for. Wait, when is this? When is the deadline for this? When is this? It's the month of August. I wish you would like told us this on Quinn should have told us about this on August first. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't gonna yeah, we'll, we'll figure this out. This is, this is coming out Monday, so it will be. I wasn't going to tell people about it because I felt like that's cheating. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. What a do-gooder. This is the kind of do-gooder y'all are trying to elect. I know. I know. I thought it's not fair. I'd, it would give me an, un, an unfair advantage if not I tell my, people. can't use my cow <laughs> of the podcast I was on twice. <laughs> but um yeah it's cool but it's good everybody knows so now you've got to donate make up for lost time find a friend that you know they don't listen to the podcast you get them to donate too to make up for lost time all right thank well, yeah. you you guys are great of course of course and uh quinn you've got a few things going on too right uh yes uh i was a delegate to the uh Democratic National Convention, the only delegate to the Democratic National Convention for Bernie Sanders from Ohio's Congressional District 5. Um, oh, yeah. And mostly that involved uh, sitting on several Zoom calls, getting paid Uber vouchers, uh, Uber Eats vouchers that are too small to be usable, and um, uh, emailing a ballot to the party. So that was mostly fine, uh, but it wasn't particularly interesting but a silver lining i guess this morning i got to uh interview one of the democratic party's uh keynote speakers uh kathleen clyde the uh county commissioner of portage county ohio uh, oh, yeah. i got to do that for uh the young delegates coalition and if anybody who's listening is interested they can go and watch that at young delegates coalition on instagram i i think it went okay 
Um, at the time, I was like, oh, my God, this is going terribly. And then I went back and watched it. I was like, this one, okay. And um, it, it was very exciting because uh, Kathleen Clyde ran for Secretary of State in 2018. And I think she's going to be around for a while. So it, it was really cool to be able to interview her. Hey, let me tell you something, Quinn. We've had a lot of episodes that we thought, gosh, that go a little rough? And then it comes out and it's great. Um, and yeah. uh, just, We've also know. had episodes that we just knew were bangers, like this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, let's do that. Let's so yeah, thank you. Thank you both so much for stopping by. We appreciate the update on the campaign. Um, Nancy Larson, we are so excited to keep watching you and we really, we really hope you flip this district. I mean, I think um, it's, me it seems so possible now and it's just really exciting. Uh, and I know I don't live in Ohio, but like, I feel like, you know, I try to tell people all the time that these kind of victories are in many ways more important than anything else. You know, if you ask people six out of 10, you know, of their greatest political issues are not things that Joe Biden is ever mm -hmm. going to solve even if you think he's perfect because the, the it's not what the president does it's not his job you know right. if your if your issue is public transportation you need Nancy Larson in your state house <laughs> <laughs> and what this is what all of this has hopefully taught everybody listening is there's a little ohio in all of us <laughs> <laughs>